Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, Brendan Batson joins us to share some powerful views on how football can help bring about meaningful change in the fight against racism. Our Manchester United writer Laurie Whitwell explains why Paul Pogba is unlikely to start against Tottenham on Friday night and the importance of the next two months for manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And the Athletics' Jack Pitbrook will detail how Premier League football will be a very different experience for everyone involved as we all adjust to the new normal. To read their work and plenty more as we build up to the return of Premier League and EFL action, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. And right now you can enjoy a 40% discount by heading over to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. Now, players' names will be replaced on the back of their shirts with Black Lives Matter for the first 12 matches of the restarted Premier League season. There will be a Black Lives Matter badge on the front of those shirts for the rest of the campaign and the Premier League will also support any player who chooses to take a knee before or during matches. The lack of representation from the black community in positions of real power within football was again questioned by Raheem Sterling last week and I'm delighted to be joined by Brendan Batson OBE. Brendan was a distinguished top-flight player with the likes of Arsenal and West Brom. He played a significant role in the launch of the Let's Kick Racism Out of Football campaign in 1993. Brendan has held advisory roles with the Football Association and is a trustee at the Professional Footballers Association. In fact, Brendan, and thank you very much for joining us, in recent days we've heard people saying, we need action now, not words. What do you want to see and what form does that meaningful action take? What actually can and should be done? I think proper action looks like that representation throughout all levels of the game. You know, for too long, we've been accepted as, uh, as players all the way through the leagues, international level. But we've never had that real representation, I think, in actually shaping the administration of the game. And having an input, you know, I can refer back to my time. I think it's really important that we focus on what the current players are talking about now, what they're looking for. I've seen Raheem Sterling talking out, people like Marcus Rashford. And it's really great to see them feeling confident that they can actually talk about these issues and try and influence the future of the game. So, you know, I think it's really important that we don't lose that energy that we're getting from these current players and that, uh, you know, we hear about another inquiry here and government's talking about it. But, you know, without being too pessimistic, you know, I've always felt that a lot of these inquiries just get kicked into the long grass when these reports come out. We never, they never see the light of day. So I'm hoping that this is change on the way. We can only hope that we don't have a repeat of what's happened in the past, that the, the issue of racism is in the news for a short period of time and then it just floats away. And how are those people in positions of power going to bring about change rather than just empty promises? We're just talking about football. I've been involved with my colleagues, uh, Garth Crooks and Paul Elliott. Paul Elliott is actually a chair of the IEB, one of the um, big pillars of the FA, Inclusion Advisory Board. We're looking for significant change. We've got a programme where we've introduced black coaches, BAMI coaches with the requisite um, qualifications into the development squads, the international setup within the FA, not just for the men, but also women are a little bit behind the curve at the moment, but we've got the same sort of thing going on for the women. So for instance, in Bulgaria, when I had um, that the last one of the last matches England played, we had Chris Powell, you know, terrific player, played for England, manager in his own right, being part of the coaching squad 
with Gareth Southgate. We've got Michael Johnson with the under-21s. So we're making some strides, but I think there has to be an acceleration. And the FA have got to take, as the governing body of the game, the guardians of the game, I think it's incumbent on the FA to make some really huge strides. And I would like to see a permanent place found for somebody like a Chris Powell. Obviously, it has to be him because he might have other ideas himself personally. But at the moment, I know he's very um, happy to be involved in that setup. But the same way we um, we talk about psychologists and all the different support that we have around uh, England, the England setup and and, and uh, Premiership teams, I think it should be a place for coaches of colour. That scheme was a placement. Nobody who was involved in it was paid. Chris Powell was supposed to be on the touchline for Euro 2020 or in the dugout next to Gareth Southgate, but that's now been postponed. And that scheme has actually come to an end because the FA is at the end of a four-year cycle for all manner of things. Things are being reviewed. They're speaking to stakeholders in the game, including yourself, to work out how they can make these schemes and everything else even better. However, as things stand, Chris Powell is now not in that job. Nobody has it until we get some clarity on what the next scheme is going to look like. And as you say there, you would like to see a permanent position recruited this to me seem seems critical it seems a no-brainer but equally the FA have to work out budgets and vacancies uh, in, in a financial crisis how important is it that they put this at the forefront of their thinking and give it the importance it deserves the FA are in that four-year cycle where they look at all aspects of the FA but our, our program is set to continue um, I'm, I've, I've had um, very brief discussion with one of the administrators Everything obviously is on hold for the moment because of COVID-19. But we've had, I think it's seven out of the eight squads. We've had a placement. It is a placement because we wanted the first thing we wanted to address is visibility. If you can't see it, you can't aspire to it. Then we want about implementation and hopefully we'll move on from that. What we want to see is a continuation because Chris had only been in post uh, for one season. We talk about seasons, but we've had someone like Jason Ewell from Charlton who was with one, I think it was the under um, 18s been part of that for nearly two seasons. Obviously, it finished with a lockdown in March, but even about two years' experience of being part of that international setup. And we want to see a similar sort of program with the females, and and that's on the go as well. So I think this is very important that the FA look to develop it. This is a PFA FA uh, program. The PFA were the ones along with my colleagues Garth Crooks, uh, Paul Elliott, um, Les Ferdinand. and we went and saw saw the FA hierarchy back in. Um, 2017 and we've got it we've got it up and running now and we want to see that continue and hopefully progress will be made from having that visibility other black coaches will see hung and there is a bit of a pathway for us if we want to get to the very top we want to be international coaches be part of that international setup so i think it's very important that the fa make sure that this continues in the near future but we want to ultimately not to have programs like this because there'll be no need because it won't be a big thing to see a coach of colour being part of the international setup, not just with international setup, but within clubs as a whole. Yeah, how welcome that would be. And and you mentioned hierarchies at the FA. You can extend that to clubs and governing bodies around Europe and the world in UEFA and FIFA. You can extend it across sports. These schemes are being set out by people. These initiatives are largely being set up, not at the PFA, I may add, which is um, very diverse at the top, by people who are largely white. How do we get our people of colour right to the top to get in these decision-making rooms and around the table? You need to be credible. You need to have the experience and you need to have the opportunity. 
So if I look at my colleague, uh, um, my good friend, Paul Elliott, he has now got a, a terrific role within the FA as chair of the Inclusion and Advisory Board. He's got people around him there who all bring something different to that committee, and that's fed in directly into the FA. So change is on the way. We just want to see it accelerated because, sadly, I listened to some of the uh, young kids who have been part of the Black Lives Matter and they're saying things that I was saying myself all those years ago. But I have never experienced such a worldwide response. We want to make sure that we really latch onto this energy. I think now the public are going to say, and let's not just talk about football, but the general public is addressing this issue of racism and inequality, discrimination within the UK. I think they're going to hold the government to account. Then I'm tinged with a little bit of disappointment, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you spent 17 years advising the FA, and you're not in that role anymore. Well, no, I was acting as a consultant. I had the opportunity to try and bring some influence. I mean, I set up the, uh, the coach scheme where you know a lot of uh, young black coaches, male and female, couldn't see opportunities. Why do we invest in ourselves and get higher qualifications? is because we think we have a better chance of getting a job. A lot of young black coaches couldn't see that opportunity, so why were they going to invest in themselves? So with the FA support and all the other governing bodies, PFA, the League Managers Association, the EFL, we all, Premier League, had a fund. I uh, headed it up, but we then paid, we had to get bursary to those coaches to get them upskilled, to give them a chance to throw their hat in the ring when a job came up, whether it be at a club, whether it be at, um, with the FA, would it be with the Football League? Those, as I say, the slow progress. The, the one we've got at the moment is the, the placement scheme. We call it the League Coach Placement Program. Uh, my good friend Garth Crooks is working in another program with the um, Football League, the EFL, and also the Premier League. So there's stuff bubbling under. Now, what we've got to make sure is that it doesn't run out of steam. And those things that have started, there's um, new people coming into the FA in the technical directorate. With Les Reed is um, the new technical director. Uh, he's been joined by uh, John McDermott, who's in charge, uh, who's his, his assistant. Uh, came from Tottenham, got a fantastic reputation, very visionary coach. And they, I think they're very much on side with the things that the PFA have uh, looked to implement with the FA. So I'm, I am optimistic, put it that way. But you're not in the role you were in before. No, but I was never employed by the FA. I acted as a consultant. I think I did as much as I possibly could. There were changes afoot. And I wanted to concentrate really on the role I was doing on behalf of the PFA to look to encourage more black coaches, as I say, with the requisite qualifications to be part of the international setup. And I would like to put as much energy as I can into that over the next year, whatever it'll, whatever it'll take, and encourage the FA, not just for the men, but for the women's game as well, to make sure that there's better representation within those coaching setups so that those young players coming through, those young black players coming through, male and female, could look at those coaches and say, you know what, come the end of my career, whenever that may be, I think I'd like to be part of that uh, organisation and be part of inspiring the next generation of players. But if they can't see it, then they can't aspire to it. So that suggests, and all of this conversation points to the fact that there is progress, however 
it might not be quite at the pace that we want within the governing body at the FA. But then you look across Premier League boardrooms and these are private entities. They run their own recruitment processes for managerial jobs. The representation across club football management in this country is a disgrace, a handful of black coaches. Do they need to be forced? We talk about the Rooney rule in the EFL, but nothing in the Premier League. Is it a moment now where we need to put something in place that whether people like it or not, it's here to stay. I think it is a moment. I think people are looking introspectively and saying, what haven't we done to make sure that inequality, discrimination, racism is no longer part of my industry, my club? And I don't think clubs can shy away from it any further because I think the current day players will keep questioning them and saying, why is that? Don't forget those current players. I mean, I don't know. He's a young man. He's playing at the top of his game. Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, all the Danny Rose, all the ones they talk about. They want to see that there's an equal opportunity for them when they come to the end of their careers, as it is for their white peers. You know, for too long, I have seen generation after generation, top international players, white, getting the opportunities that I don't see reflected in the black players. And that is what's being talked about now. So I think clubs can no longer dodge the, um, the question and saying, why isn't our coaching staff, the way we run our club, all the different departments within our club, there's lots of jobs within clubs. Why isn't that being reflective, not just of the players who play for our club, but also in society as a whole? John Barnes was very vocal on that over the weekend, saying that black managers get sacked quicker than white managers. It may be subconscious, he admitted. I don't have the evidence, the numbers in front of me. I just know it. I just feel it. It, it It's clear that that's the case. And, you know, when you see somebody, let's say Sol Campbell, Dwight York, they, a lot of players have spoken recently about the opportunities that they have not had, that white managers have had. And whether it's an active bias stereotyping call it what you like discrimination or subconscious it appears that that's blatant i wouldn't disagree but by the same token i would never accuse anybody of racism or discrimination without having the proof what i think is clear just by line of sight there is a total almost absence of black managers and coaches within our game at all levels and People can draw their own conclusions from that, but the evidence doesn't lie in terms of what you see with your own eyes. That's why when you saw somebody, uh, or when we saw Chris Powell in that setup, um, particularly that Bulgaria, I think it was first game the Bulgaria game, you know, the black players could turn and look at him, and he was because of his experience with all that, all they had to put up with during the course of that game. He was a great voice and a great um, uh, person of comfort to those black players that were being subjected to that at that time. So I think we, we, have to, we have to make sure that there are equal opportunities for all who deserve that. And let's say for too long, you know, black players and without disclosing names, they, they've spoken to me, I've spoken to them, and they said, we just don't see the same opportunities. Why it looks as though black players are being sacked more quickly because there's so few of them. I saw some comments from Gary Neville recently that said uh, no one would dis disagree with black players walking off the pitch if they were racially abused. Well, I'm afraid I, th I think they would. Firstly, the players had the opportunity in um, 
uh, in the in England international and and told Gareth Southgate that they wanted to continue the match. Secondly, they don't know what repercussions are going to come on them from governing bodies if they don't follow this process, which Gary Neville describes as being like an instruction manual. And thirdly, we cannot ad- ignore the fact that there are people, we see it on social media, we see it in, in streets <laughs> of this country and others in, in recent weeks, um, who would absolutely hound black players if they walked off we support that if they were to choose to walk off but many people would criticize and abuse them i would say it shouldn't be left to the players to take that decision players are employees of the clubs they are representing england when they play international duty it is up to those who are um, in charge of them to make that decision i can't think of any other walk of life at the moment where an employee could be subjected to a level of um, race abuse that we see or hear um, when we watch some football matches. Listen, if a player wants to walk off, I would support him 100%. It isn't something I would particularly, I would advocate because I think we've come too far for people to, to, for black players to be driven off the pitch. But if any individual player wants to take that action, I would support him 100%. What I would prefer to see is that the managers, the governing body, you know, if it's an international game, um, the governing body, the chairman of the FA, get a message down to the manager and say, bring those players off. If he's a chairman of a football club and his players have been subjected to that racial abuse and the, the, the protocol that's in place isn't being adhered to, I think they should get a message down to the manager and say, get those players off. That would be a real-life manifestation of the words zero tolerance. We hear it from every single club and organisation, yet despite when there are incidents, there are still too many examples of where zero tolerance, in its literal form, is not shown. And even cases in in the instance of Antonio Rudiger, who in some quarters was accused of lying when he reported what he felt to be racist abuse. And so that phrase, zero tolerance, really troubles me. You mentioned there, somebody from above should make the call. It it surely seems on that phrase that it's time to practice what you preach, literally. In all my years, I came to England as a nine-year-old. I had to put up with a lot of stuff, but and not just me, but everybody of colour who came that Windrush generation we talk about. And that discrimination, that lack of opportunity, the racism that black people have to encounter to different degrees still persists. Football shouldn't be a silver bullet. It can't be the silver bullet to get rid of everything. What changes things is government. Politicians change things. You know, Nelson Mandela, who fantastic, everybody admires Nelson Mandela. I think the two things I remember about Nelson Mandela in particular is when he came out after being subjected to the apartheid, horrendous apartheid system, was he said, he didn't look for vengeance or anything like that. He set up the truth and reconciliation. And he said to the school kids, the first thing he said to the school kids was, go back to school. Right? That is leadership. Now, I think, you know, I've heard Boris Johnson, our prime minister, talk on the television this morning or last night, talking about, yes, we've got to do things. We've got to, and he sets up an inquiry. Right. That's what they want to do it. Fine. But I think this time people will hold him to account. We can't keep on having an inquiry. I remember Theresa May standing on the steps of Downing Street, um, outside Downing Street uh, back in uh, 2017, saying roughly the same thing. We've got to stop this inequality. Nothing happened. Lamy's report, and he's there on the television yesterday saying, implement it. What those recommendations are, implement it. There is a moment in time. I am more optimistic than ever, and I think there's an opportunity. And if football wants to take the lead, then so be it, because football has a fantastic influence 
uh, within our society. But it isn't out the football to solve all the ills. Without that meaningful action, that genuine zero tolerance, are movements and organisations that you were closely and are closely involved with kick racism out of football that turned into kick it out? Can they bring about influence? Can the slogans, can the t-shirts have any impact without the action? And until the action comes, are they making anywhere near the difference that they need to without the crucial other part, which is the change. I certainly think that Kick It Out is at a crossroads at the moment. Um, we started that off, that was launched in 1993. Here we are now. It has always been a campaigning organisation. It is funded by the stakeholders, Premier League, the League, PFA. It is a campaign. It doesn't have what I call teeth. And I think it's at a crossroads because I wonder if the current players have got enough confidence in that organisation to bring about meaningful change. I hope they can do. We have a new um, uh, chief executive in, 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 in the role, and I'm hoping that they can move things forward and influence the stakeholders who can bring about change. But I, I think we must look to invest in those players. We need to make sure that we listen to them, those players that are speaking out. And this isn't just a black thing. This is black and white players. When we launched Kick It Out in um, 93 on the platform, were black and white players, players, well-known players of that era. Now we're at a different stage, and I think the current players, the energy that they're showing, they've got a platform, they've got a voice, they're not afraid to, uh, to let it be heard. People in those positions to bring about change have to make sure that they harness that energy and they listen to what, those, what these current players are saying and look to implement change. Otherwise, you know, things like kick it out, they're, they're terrific um, uh, other anti-racism campaigns up and down the country, I think they will lose a bit of um, traction and a bit of relevance because current players can't see that change. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but that's what I'm worried about. And I think it's important from my perspective and us as a media organisation, everybody listening to this, many of whom will work in the media, that we have a role to play, a huge role to play in this as well. And that's something I think, Brendan, you're very passionate about. Oh, yes, I think the media has a massive role to play because... For too long, and I've spoken to people in the media about this, the media seemed to promote the next managers, potential next managers, but they've always been white. I go back to my generation. You know, I played with Brian Robson, great, great player. Always going to be uh, involved in management, as he went on to do. People like Graham Soonis, you always felt, I always felt that those players will be given the opportunity to, be, to become managers. You reel it forward, people like John Terry, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, always been promoted as the next manager. Only black player I can recall being promoted was Paul Ince. And I think part of that is because he's that sort of character and he was putting it out there himself. But the media seemed to promote who they think would be the next manager, but they've all been white. And it's almost like an unconscious bias, but I think they've got a real role to play. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate Pleasure. it. I've, I've not had the fortune to speak with many people who can lay it out and articulate it as well as you but also who are involved in these conversations right now so we really are grateful for your contribution thank you for the time thank you hello i'm james richardson host of the totally football show now part 
of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. So three months after football went into lockdown, the Premier League is back this week with the usual drama and intrigue that we all love. But of course, it's going to look a little different both on and off the pitch. The Athletics Jack Pitbrook has written about football's new normal and joins us now. Jack, run us through the main themes of your piece. The main differences, David, are that the obvious one first, there'll be hardly anyone there. The only people at the ground will be players, officials, broadcasters, a sprinkling of written journalists. And that's kind of it, really. Each stadium will be divided into different coloured zones through which it's very difficult to cross. The red zone, which is the main one, which will have players and officials, I believe there'll only be maybe 100 or so people accredited to enter the red zone for each game. There'll be plenty of restrictions on players and staff in terms of their preparation for games. Social distancing has to be observed wherever possible, as in basically any time when, aside from the actual football match itself, they have to be socially distanced. Uh, so that, that means there are even things on restrictions on how many people can take a shower at the same time, for example, because you can't have the whole team piling into the shower together because that would contribute <laughs> social distancing. So they will have to be a rotor, I believe, for showering to make sure that they're not all all in there together. Things like team talks are going to be time-limited to 15 minutes. Massages after the game are going to be time-limited to 15 minutes. So it's very, very, very different from what we're used to and certainly what the players are used to. But the football itself will hopefully be the same. Well, that shower rotor seems to take place in my household every day, so I don't think that will be the biggest deal to them. But you've brilliantly explained, what, 140 pages worth of documentation from the Premier League in a very concise way there. But you still have haven't mentioned the headline, which is Gunnosaurus. I know. So this was a, a detail in the story that we published on Saturday morning and will be of immense sadness to many fans <laughs> around the country. The Premier League's position on this is that there are the only people who should be there are people who are there to work. And that means they have, you know, they really have to limit the numbers. And so there will, I think, no Gunnosaurus, no Moonchester, no Fred the Red, no Harry the Hornet, no Chirpy the Cockerel. Uh <laughs> I don't even. I can't even think, David, of the rest of the names of them. But none There's of them a will hammer, be there. I'm sure. Yeah, is it Herbie the Hammer? I think, or Hermie <laughs> the Hammer. I suppose these mascots are primarily there to entertain young fans. Obviously, there will be no fans in the ground. I suppose you could say they're part of the TV product as well nowadays. But nevertheless, they will not have passes. There will be no Gunnosaurus at games, given that you know he is so ubiquitous at Arsenal over the last few years, and he's he's always there. He's on the he's you know pitch side in the tunnel in the mix zone. You see him on the club's media output all the time. It you know it's good. It's one of a number of things that we're all going to have to get used to. It really is football, but not as we know it. There'll also be no ball boys um, and girls. Referees, uh, what's the situation with the match officials there, Jack? They will come in through the same entrance as the players. Their own changing facilities will have to be socially distanced. They will have to keep hand sanitising. They will face their own restrictions like that. Uh, in terms of the refereeing of the game, well, the thing is, they can't, like, the, the Premier League cannot change the laws of the game. They belong to FIFA and IFAB. 
we're not going to start seeing red cards for spitting or anything like that. What I do think we'll see is referees continually reminding players of their responsibilities regarding social distancing and hygiene. So if you see, you know, in a normal game, you would see players spitting just to get rid of phlegm all the time. But I'm sure nowadays referees will tell players, actually, you know what, you shouldn't be doing that for obvious reasons. So in that sense, their job is slightly changed. And also, because there are no ball boys, the balls will be on cones around the pitch. And that means I believe it's the referee's job to indicate when he wants a player to go and fetch a ball and when, if the ball is too far away, the referee will point to a ball on the cone and tell the player to take the throw in with that specific football. The Premier League is sold around the world for huge amounts of money based on the whole package, really, isn't it? Including packed stadiums. The atmosphere is so important. Amy Lawrence did an interview with Arsene Wenger recently where he said he thinks the Premier League will be most affected by the lack of fans because in England, the fans influence the action the most. These TV broadcasters will be desperate for the sort of television experience not to be too badly diminished. And and there may be some techniques around that as well, I'm sure. Yeah, this is absolutely fundamental to the success of the Premier League over the last 30 years has been the crowds. You know, the, the stadiums are good. They're generally full of, I mean... Very few Premier League games have lots of unsold seats. The fans, they have away fans who are very loud and passionate. It's, it is a huge part of the package. And it's one of the reasons why the Premier League has become a much bigger international product than the other major European leagues have been. So it's completely integral to the strength of the Premier League. You can't replicate it. There is nothing There is nothing that they can do to recreate having 60,000 screaming people in a stadium. That said, I do think, you know, if you watch clips of Bundesliga where they have piped in crowd noise, I actually think it's quite good. Like, it, of course, it's not the same, but it, it makes it feel a little bit less eerie, a little bit less like training, a little bit less unreal. And if we see that, I'd like, I like. personally, I'd love to see that in the Premier League. And I'd like to think that it would create something that was slightly less unfamiliar for us. From Project Restart correspondent to Tottenham specialist, uh, you do a lot of work with Charlie Eccleshire on the White Hart Lane Club or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium Club on Spurs. Charlie's written about a second chance of sorts for Jose Mourinho and Spurs as they get going again with this huge match against Manchester United on Friday. It's interesting. Tottenham have been in the news a lot for breaches of lockdown rules, eagerness to get back into training. Jose Mourinho commenting as such within managers' meetings and in the media. They're really eager. They've got some players back fit and, and they want to attack this end of the season, it's clear. Yeah, the mood at Tottenham is good, I'm told. Sources generally say that Mourinho's upbeat, that he's very, very motivated and focused on the next nine games because this is a chance that they never thought they were going to get. Like Spurs were in a terrible situation back in February and March. All their best players were injured. They looked exhausted physically and mentally. They were going nowhere. Whereas now they're in this bizarre situation where... They have Kane, Son and Sissoko back. They're a few wins away from being back in Champions League contention. And I think I'm quite optimistic for them, David. I think they're going to do it. You know, this this thing that nobody expected would happen might just turn out to give Tottenham a window they can sneak through to make it into next season's Champions League. And that Champions League seems fundamental, Jack. I mean, for financial reasons as much as anything else. Yeah, obviously Spurs are going through a difficult time at the moment, as all clubs are. We did a story about this last week, you and I, about the £175 million loan the club has taken for the Bank of England to give them a little bit more financial flexibility over the next year. But I think the days of big money transfer spending at Spurs were over if they were ever here. 
So being in the Champions League, as lucrative as that is, is hugely important, even though we don't know what next year's Champions League is going to look like. But Spurs have still got to be in it if they can be. Tottenham have announced that fans will be shown on big screens within their stadium, and that will allow the players to see their supporters watching back home coming to you from this Friday, according to Laurie Whitwell, our athletic colleague. Yeah, this is a really nice story. I think this was trialled first in Denmark. But it's just nice for the players to know that they have that they are still rep- out there representing the fans, even if there are no fans in the ground. It must be easy to forget the fans if you're playing in an empty stadium, whereas to have them there projected up on the big screen should hopefully give them a little bit more of a sense of connection to the people they're still playing for. Jack, enjoy Project Restart, shower rotors and all. You too, mate. Thank you. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. And with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Well, we mentioned Laurie Whitwell's piece about the big screens that will be at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And Laurie joins us now to talk about what's going to be probably the standout fixture of the first round of matches. Friday night, Spurs hosting Manchester United. And one of the absolute box office names of the Premier League, Paul Pogba, is available again. Laurie, you've written about him and his return for The Athletic. But what are you hearing about the likelihood of him starting or not? My information is that it's unlikely that he will start, which I suppose isn't necessarily that great a surprise given he hasn't played since Boxing Day, uh, been out for a number of, of months with the ankle injury, trying to get get over that. Now he has returned to training and I think we, we reported just before lockdown how he was um, chomping at the bit really to, to get back involved. So he's continued that throughout lockdown, been training well, looked good. Um, when you've partnered in with Bruno Fernandes in, in training but I think ultimately when you go to Spurs the guarding against the quick counter-attacks that uh, they might have is one thing also just the feeling that United were on an unbeaten run of 11 games playing really well and does even Paul Pogba need to work his way back into that kind of team uh, I think what it really means is that Solskjaer's got options now whereas previously in the season he didn't really have that many to choose from you know, it's quite exciting really to have the prospects of Paul Pogba, Bruno Fernandes playing together, but maybe it'll take a little bit of time just to to get those uh, on the pitch together. Uh, you know, it, plans could change, you know, they could come come again and, and think actually, you know, maybe Paul Pogba could start, but I, I think at the moment the, the preparation is very much that it's going to be other midfielders that play. Jack told us he thinks that Tottenham will snatch that last Champions League place. Obviously, really? we still don't know what's happening with Manchester City, but... Manchester United will be in that fight as well and had built a bit of momentum before the shutdown. This is a huge game. Could the sort of magnitude of it have a bearing on Pogba starting or not? Uh, certainly the, the magnitude is is something that Solskjaer will, will take into account. I mean, you know, as you say, it's, it's Tottenham certainly are, have been using this break, I think, as an opportunity to feel like they can build some momentum and, and, and 
what was looking very unlikely is, is them challenging for the Champions League places. Um, Solskjaer is very aware of that. He's also aware of the fact that he has beaten Spurs already this season at a time when it did look quite brittle for him at Manchester United. He came up with a, a tactical plan um, that managed to pretty much convincingly beat Spurs that night at Old Trafford. So I think he'll appreciate all that, but he also knows that he's got that flexibility there to, you know, he's got five subs, so it d- doesn't necessarily mean that Pogba won't play any part if he doesn't start the game. I'm sure he'd, he could come on and, and, and cause effects, you know, as we saw at Watford, for example, he hadn't played for a sort of three months at that point earlier this season, came on with 26 minutes to go and was created one chance, had two shots himself and, and really invigorated the side. So that could be something that's in Solskjaer's mind. I think he appreciates that you, you really, you can't be, they don't, they don't want to be losing this game. So that's perhaps the, the starting premise, albeit the fact that they have beaten Spurs at Spurs before obviously last season the 1-0 win they've beaten them this season so they will be looking to go there and win and that would really you'd think make it very very difficult for Spurs to get back in the Champions League picture Yeah it feels like one of the first times we've talked about Pogba without mentioning his future and also there's been so much chat about controversy around him his agent and all sorts of issues do you think he has a point to prove not just to the United fans but also internally at the club his mindset perhaps has been on a potential move you know for, for a while you know he said that last summer really himself and his in the words of his agent have, have only sort of increased that feeling but I think you could look at this sort of running in two ways either you know he, he still wants to go and okay well therefore this could be a short window for him it's a short period of time lots of games in succession he will feature definitely you know you look at United's fixture list it might be 16 games if they make it all the way in the Europa league in the FA Cup so there's going to be opportunity there if he if he really does want to move play well and earn that move and I'm sure nobody at United would sort of have a grievance with him if that was the situation and they got good money for him we've seen at the World Cup with France that he can really turn it on in a short space of time over a summer period so you know maybe there's some similarities there alternatively if he has been if his mind has sort of changed a little bit with Bruno Fernandes' arrival and the way that United looked um, towards the end of uh, you know March where they'd gone on this run then here's a chance to prove it you know here's a chance to prove your affiliation to United obviously he's still got uh, a year left with an next option for United that I'm sure they'll extend for so two years so it's a, a considerable amount of time and the way that we all know the transfer market is there's no guarantee that there's going to be clubs that will be able to pay the money that United would want this summer so really I would suggest that this is a chance for him to kind of recalibrate those links with the club. You mentioned Bruno Fernandes there in your piece there's a quote from a dressing room source about the idea of Pogba and Fernandez playing together which is mouth-watering for many of us but some will say they might not work together. Different people that I spoke to had slightly differing opinions on it. You've got the one hand people saying listen they're two extremely technically gifted players put them in the same team together you can sort of figure it out later obviously there'll be tactical work on the training pitches but essentially they're really good players get them on the ball get them in the team other people are perhaps a bit more cautioned against that just because Solskjaer has tended to sort of go for a 4-2-3-1 admittedly Pogba has played deeper in that system but does that really allow for the best to come from Bruno Fernandes who was given licence in his run in this sort of five, six game pit sequence before lockdown that he he got from having that protection in behind Pogba's not he won't stay in that position. Pogba wants to burst forward, understandably so, when you've got the gifts that he has. Could he change formation to a sort of 4-3-3? Possibly. And, and Solskjaer's shown that tactical flexibility with a diamond at Everton, for example, or the, or the sort of back three system. But I think it, it does... I don't think it's as simple as just get them on the pitch. I do think it'll take a bit of time to, to work out 
their wavelengths and, and sort of work out what each of them likes to respond to. I did so also mention in this piece that there's a, a little bit of a tendency perhaps for them to both enjoy that left side. Uh, so obviously Pogba did his, his best work at Juventus sort of in, in a left of a midfield three and Bruno's sort of heat map from his time at United so far has, has shown a, a bit of a tendency to the left as well. People who, who watch sport in Lisbon regularly tell me that actually he, he has been effective on the right as well and his, his general area of activity shows that he's kind of across the, the front, you know, the width of the pitch so maybe that's not necessarily too big an issue but it did just make me think that actually there's probably a few little bits that they need to iron out before we can just sort of see a, a potential exciting partnership. Danny Taylor's written an outstanding piece on The Athletic. I strongly recommend you go and check it out and he's basically saying that these two months will show us if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the right man for United. He clearly needs Paul Pogba to deliver but Laurie judging by Solskjaer's comments over the lockdown period he's not a shrinking violet he's going to do what's best for Manchester United whether that means going with big names or without them. We've seen previously he sold Romelu Lukaku, Alexis Sanchez was loaned out and, and both of those things were decided upon quite early but took a while to happen and ultimately left Solskjaer short of a striker you know he but he didn't mind that well he, he probably did a little bit but he, he accepted that that was um, a bit of collateral because he wanted to have the team the, the players in his squad that all wanted to be there now if we do you know believe that Pogba wants to go still then that's something that will need to be decided upon in time. I certainly don't think that Solskjaer would 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 shy away from leaving Pogba out of the team because he he, he because he, he doesn't feel like he, he can. I think he certainly feels emboldened to do that, particularly now he has got Bruno there to to create. And I think also he he might even want to make a point that he wants players who are all on the same page, all want to be at United, playing you know for the team and, and playing for success. And as we've seen with Pogba throughout his time in, in the last year or so, that hasn't been the case. I just want to finish with you, Laurie, by taking a moment to pay tribute to Marcus Rashford, who has been doing some, quite frankly, astonishing work off the pitch, as well as how good he is on the pitch, of course, but he's been injured and so he's had a little bit more time to focus on some of his extracurricular activities and you could say far more important issues. Uh, You'd like to think he's the personification of what a club like Manchester United should be all about when it comes to their community contribution. I kind of, I can't, sort of raised my hat enough to Marcus Rashford. I think the way that he has approached certain aspects of society, issues that need addressing has been phenomenal. Uh, obviously, the letter that he released to MPs to urge them to reconsider their postponement of the uh, school meal vouchers for low-income families is goes to the heart of, of where he comes from. So it's sincere, it um, is extremely powerful and moving and it's effective. It's a way of drawing attention to an issue, using his platform and his voice um, for good things. And obviously that was, is, is fantastic. You, you can't expect that of everybody. He clearly wants to put his energies into that, but I think it's a tribute to the way he's been raised by his mum, Melanie, and the family that he's got around him. I do think we should really appreciate the effort and the time and the focus that he's given to this. And when you see him have interviews on the subject, you can see how much it means to him. He, he can speak articulately and in depth about these subjects. So it's something that's real and meaningful and uh, credit to him. Um, and also apparently he has, he has been on fire on the pitch. So you know he's, he's doing it on and off. Laurie, very well said. And thank you. Good luck for the week ahead. Cheers, David. You too. 
Right, that's it. Make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman and enjoy a 40% discount. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week.